Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Stephen Greenblatt, whose latest book is The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve. Earlier books include The Swerve, which won the Pulitzer Prize, Will in the World, this is the 12th book, plus there are several books that you edited as well. After The Swerve, what put you on to Adam and Eve? This book, The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve, is what lies on the other side of the curtain from what I wrote about in The Swerve. So The Swerve was a book about the fact that 2,500 years ago in ancient Greece and then in Rome, there was a very fully worked out theory that the world was atoms and emptiness and nothing else, that there was no reason to pray because the gods weren't interested in our lives. Our moral decisions were ones we would make on our own that had nothing to do with an elaborate scheme of the universe, that humans were a species that had evolved like all the species, that they would survive for a while and disappear, and so forth and so on. And that theory was available and lost. And the question is, why did it lose? Why was the theory that now seems to us in effect, in the 21st century, at least to many of us, so compelling. Why did it have, for several millennia, virtually no presence? The answer lies in Adam and Eve, and Adam and Eve and everything attached to Adam and Eve. It, it lies in the extremely powerful and compelling way in which, for the Jews and then for Christians and for Muslims, there was a very different story about human responsibility, about a transgression at the beginning of time, about the consequences of that transgression and so forth, everything that my, my current book is about. Let's go back then. You finished The Swerve. At that point, did you start asking that question? Did you know the answer? In other words, did this book come directly while you were working on the other book? Did it come when you began examining? How did that happen? Well, yes and no. Things never happened very neatly. I've always been interested in art, and I teach sometimes at Harvard where I'm a professor. I teach courses with art historian friends. And so I taught a course on Adam and Eve with a friend, Joseph Kerner, who's a professor of art history there, because Adam and Eve is the perfect subject for the combined interests of literature and in uh, painting. And then for me, Adam and Eve was interesting, not so much because I was planning to write a book about it, but because I've been fascinated forever by stories, by why they work why they dig into you, why you never forget them. or Sometimes you do, but in this case you don't over a long period of time. And what is it about stories that, that make them work the way they do? And this story, the story of Adam and Eve, is arguably the, the greatest, most consequential story in the entire history of Western civilization, which is saying a lot. So that was where I started. And then as I began to think about it, I began to think, yes, this is a story that I could investigate, spend years on thinking about precisely because it, it called up all of the things, as they say, the, the, the shadow side of all the things I'd been working on for years before that. When I began reading it, um, 
you know, I was a little skeptical, a book about Adam and Eve. And then as I read it, particularly when I got to the part about Augustine and St. Jerome, it suddenly dawned on me, like this revelation, that all of the awful anti-sex, anti-humanity in a way, things seem in religion that come down today, all of that seems to come from various elements of those two men interpreting Adam and Eve. It is fascinating. First of all, I'm delighted, Richard, that I gave you a revelation. After all, it can't happen that often. And it's true what you say. What's fascinating about about that moment in the fourth and fifth centuries is that there had been a very long set of arguments that had been running arguments about what to do about this origin story. The Hebrews made a decision. The origin story is super old. I mean, it must have been circulating in oral culture for centuries and centuries. And then the Hebrews evidently write it down, let's say, in the sixth century. Quick question. How long is that segment of Genesis? Nothing. It's a page and a half. It's, a, it's, or it's three chapters. The first three chapters, there are two different stories. There's a creation account in chapter one, the exquisite, beautiful chapter one of Genesis, where it simply says that God created the human in his image. Male and female, he created them. And then there's a long set of ancient speculations that that must mean that the original creature was hermaphrodite with male and female being combined. But then when you get to chapters two and three, and these are very short chapters, these are a limited number of verses, in chapter th two and three, you're plunged into a story. And now most biblical scholars think that these are two quite separate stories that have been stitched together and, and come from different time frames. chapters two and three being much older, really probably based on quite archaic materials. So the story about the naked man and the woman and the talking snake in the garden with the magical trees. This is a very old story that precedes, in a way, the formation of what we would recognize as, as Judaism, anything like this. But it gets coded brilliantly, extraordinarily, at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, which the Hebrews write down, let's say, around the sixth century before the Common Era. But if you look at the responses to the story, and it's fascinating that they chose to begin the Bible this way, not with the creation of the first Jews, but with the creation of the first humans, because Adam and Eve are Jewish, they precede this. Then the question is what to do with the story. What does the story mean? And for centuries, there's lots of evidence, fascinating evidence, that the story meant a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So that, to take a single example, the earliest surviving trace of the story, which was recovered, dug up in 1946 from the sands of the desert in Egypt, that version of the story says that the hero of the story is the woman because the God who tells humans that they shouldn't know the difference between good and evil, they shouldn't have the knowledge of, the, of good and evil, must be a wicked God, that knowledge is good and that it must be either the woman or the serpent who is the hero of the story. Now, it's buried under the sand for several thousand years. That means that wasn't an acceptable version of the story. Now, that's also sort of similar to the Gnostic version of the story. Exactly. Right? The point here, Richard, is that there are, first of all, is that there are alternative interpretations available always. But secondly, that as far as we can tell 
as far back as we can go, the story, even in its tiny compass, its the few pages, has posed a set of interpretive, incredible interpretive problems. What do you do about a God who says, there's, look, one single prohibition, you can't eat of that tree, but then it turns out that that tree is the one thing you would have to eat if you wanted to observe the prohibition because you, without knowing the difference between good and evil, how could you <laughs> observe the prohibition? Right. How do you know you could take? You <laughs> yeah. should take it or not. And yeah. you have a likewise a God who says, if you do that, you're going to die, but who doesn't bother to explain what death is. How would you know what death is if you've just been created in a garden where there's no death? So, I imagine myself that Adam might have scratched his head and said to himself after the conversation, you know, I don't really know what he meant by lest you die. I, I need to ask him that next time I have a conversation with him. In any case, not to be entirely lighthearted about this. These were problems, deep problems that were recognized from the beginning. And part of the point of the rise and fall of Adam and Eve of my book is that the problems are not defects in the story. They are the story. That's what is powerful about the story, that what human beings have been grappling with for several thousand years are twists in this remarkably tight little story that professes to explain everything. Where I came in in my revelation was in reading about Augustine, suddenly I realized something, which is that this story, which as you say is just a couple of paragraphs that's kind of makes very little sense except as a little science fiction story, that he took this and because of whatever twisted things were going on in his brain and because of his power, he created the entire anti-sexual perspective of the church. He created something out of the fact that he was not indifferent to sex, but something like the reverse. If Augustine had been a cold fish, as it were, who happened to find it quite easy to embrace chastity as a monk, we would have a probably quite different account of what matters. And a different civilization, and, perhaps. And a different civilization. But instead, he, and not he alone, but to some extent, as always, you don't only represent yourself, you also represent a whole cultural matrix. He's deeply worried about the nature of desire. He himself, and if we can believe him, and he wanted us to know this about himself, he had a wild life. He went to the University of Carthage, and he had a wild life in Carthage. Must have been one hell of a frat. <laughs> and, and in his account, then he settled down, but he settled down with a mistress with whom he lived for 13 years, whom he evidently loved, with whom he had a child whom he loved. That is to say, he's a person who testifies powerfully and movingly about the claims of the body and also of the emotional life that's bound up with the body, what it is to live with a person sexually. And it was giving that up in order to embrace chastity that was for him at the center of his eventual conversion to Christianity under the enormous power and influence of his formidable mother, Monica, after whom we get Santa Monica and the Santa Monica Freeway, <laughs> this astonishing woman. That decision meant a huge amount, and he couldn't understand that decision and what it meant without understanding the story of Adam and Eve. That's the strange piece of this. Well, I mean, you can say, of course, that he began to examine Adam and Eve and therefore came up with this. But then again, you could also say, well, here was one guy 
who went from one extreme to the other and, of course, became a fanatic in the other extreme, which happens to a lot of people. What you call a fanatic, other people call a saint. So he is someone who brings himself passionately, body and soul, to the effort to understand who he is and who we all are. He has enormous power, intellectual power, institutional power, persuasive power, and he brings everything in his being to the effort to make you try to understand that there is something fundamentally wrong with you. And what is wrong with you is tied up with your sexual desires. Which comes back to the whole idea of original sin, which is, of course, a key element. Yes, he invents this, basically. There's no one... I mean, there are hints, of course, that nothing was ever invented completely from nothing, so that there are hints of something like this perception. But nothing, broadly speaking, in the rabbinical culture that interpreted this story in the Midrash Rabbah resembles anything like original sin. Certainly nothing in the story itself in Genesis speaks of original sin. But Augustine made the crucial, we call it revelation, a breakthrough, a decision, that sinfulness, our sinfulness, is a sexually transmitted disease, that we got it from the way we were made in the intercourse of our parents and they from theirs. And, you know, we can say, and I respect and understand the horror with which you and many, many others looking back think, my God, this is what he visited upon us for centuries. But look, Richard, he's looking around and saying, there's something wrong with us as a species, and it must be transmitted from something. How is it transmitted? And this is how he thought it was transmitted. And of course, by virtue of being a powerful bishop by then, he's able to ensure that other opinions are kind of forced to the wayside. Yeah, he's a, he's a tremendously good institutional infighter. He has a, a set of theological opponents who said to him as if they were from Cambridge, Massachusetts or Berkeley, California, you're out of your mind. This is a, a monstrous theory. An, an infant in the cradle is not evil. And Augustine needed to persuade them and everyone else that that was wrong, that those infants are already evil because they carry original sin. And his arguments are actually quite powerful for this, even though we might back away in dismay. His argument goes basically, look at those infants waving their hands and legs around and screaming and crying. You think they're just screaming and crying because they're so little, they can't do anything to you. But if they had power, they would be doing terrible things to you already. What about the problems, though? I mean, he did write a book that he wasn't happy with, The Problems of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve is central for a couple of reasons. Adam and Eve is central for Augustine because he needed to think and to argue and persuade people that the problems that we had as a species go all the way back to the beginning, to something that happened at the beginning and was then transmitted. So he thought that it would only be if we understand Adam and Eve that we could understand that process. Secondly, he thought, and Christianity as a whole embraced the notion that since St. Paul says that Jesus is the new Adam, we have to understand who the old Adam is. There's no way of understanding the new without the old. But third, and this is the strange, really strange part, incredibly sophisticated man that he was, very complex intellectual with a background reading Platonic philosophy and so forth, he decided that we needed to take the story literally. It, we could not merely interpret it as a parable or an allegory, that these must have been real people at the beginning of time, as real as your 
grandparents or great-grandparents and that we need to go all the way back and understand that reality and accept that reality. Even though on some level it doesn't make sense. Well, it did make sense to billions of people over a long period of time, but it was hard work because people are no more or less credulous in the 5th century than they are today. A story about a naked man and woman and a talking snake is not how should we say, immediately believable. Well, neither is, you know, believing in a president that does what he does. Ah, Exactly, Richard. You could, in fact, say you need to have an explanation for how did we get to this point. And for Augustine, that was not a difficult answer. You get to this point because there's something wrong with us. And that something wrong with us might lead to catastrophic decisions such as, well, you name them. Stephen Greenblatt, before we go on to Milton, Paradise Lost is a big part of the book, Uh, I want to hit briefly St. Jerome because that's where the misogyny comes in. Yes. Augustine, I think, was not notable for misogyny. That is to say, Augustine thought actually that the sin in the garden was principally the responsibility of Adam, even though he wasn't the first to eat. But he should not have eaten because he was given, as Augustine felt, we could say this is implicitly misogynistic, he was given what he needed as a man to be able to resist this. And he hadn't, after all, talked to the snake. He only took it from his wife, whereas the woman had a conversation with the snake. But Jerome, in the same period, had a very different view. He and actually other people in that world. Men. Uh, men in that world. But, but they persuaded women of the same argument, believed that the center of the sin lay with a woman. And they could draw upon a very strong tradition of misogyny in Greek culture. Pandora. Pandora, exactly, that all the evils and miseries of the world come from that wretched Pandora who opened the box or the lid of the jar and let all the horrible things out. Stay away from women. They waggle their tail at you. They tempt you and so forth and so on, but they're going to ruin you. There's a strong tradition in pagan culture of that. The Christians began by welcoming women to the table. Women are incredibly important in the early church much more important, have much more of a place at the table, as it were, than they did in Greek and Roman religion. But then in the fifth century, the screws begin to tighten, and there's a stronger and stronger current of misogyny. And then in looking for a justification for the misogyny, of course, they have the Adam and Eve story is right there for them. And they could say that what that story proves is that women should keep their place. Adam should have kept the woman from doing any of these things. The rabbis had many speculations because there's a problem in the story. Eve has the conversation with the serpent. Where's Adam? And rabbis who wrote the Midrash Rabbah, they had a number of possibilities. They said, well, maybe they had made love in the afternoon. It was a warm day. And Adam had a nap. And Eve went off. That's one rabbinical explanation. Another possibility is that Adam decided to go and do a survey of the territory. He, had got, he was in a new garden. He hadn't seen the area, and so he decided to have a walk. And that was what led Eve to be by herself when she talked to the serpent. But by the 4th or 5th century, there begin to be speculations that there's something about Eve that is particularly vulnerable to this kind of wickedness. Now we get on to Milton, and then, of course, we get on to how Adam and Eve began to fall, fall as in not the fall of man, but how other things, particularly evolution, began to make the story a little less, I guess, important. 
What would be the right word? Bearable. Bearable? Yes, endurable. That is to say, my title is a bit of a play on words in the sense that, of course, the fall and the biblical sense of the fall is at stake here. But my book is a history of a story, a story of a story. And the story has, as we've started to say, a remarkable rise that centers on the decision made by Christianity, because it's really, it's become centrally a Christian story, a decision made in the wake of Augustine to take Adam and Eve as real, to make them literally true. And that's hard. It took about a thousand years of trying to do this, to try to figure all of it out. There's so many problems, the ones we've already talked about, but lots of other problems, uh, problems that are built into the story. Who is that serpent? Why is he doing that? Why is he engaged in this conversation? Is there something in the trees where the trees actually genuinely magical trees? And yes. Well, I'm going to interrupt you here yeah. because the snake becomes Lucifer. They come up with a gigantic backstory, as actually to some extent the Muslims do as well in, around the figure of Iblis, that there is some kind of satanic figure who enters into the snake perhaps and does some of these things. So that's definitely not in the original story. No, none of this is in the original story, any more than an apple is in the original story. There is a need, powerful need felt from early on to try to fill out so much that was not in the story. And once the church says, no, this is literally true, then you have to ask all the questions because these people are intellectually and spiritually, how should we say, heroic. They don't want to leave any stone unturned. They want to know, was there death in the garden? Did the animals die? And if they died, would there have been lots of corpses on the ground of Eden? You know, my question is if Adam and Eve are the first, and there are three sons, where do the wives come in? Which, you, know, you talk a little bit about Cain and his city. Well, you are, I mean, you would have asked that question that would have been punished in, in religious school, but and presumably was asked more or less routinely by inquiring children who were told to shut up. Because the story, of course, is that when Cain uh, kills his brother and is uh, told to wander, he says, but everyone who meets me will, will kill me. That's why God gives him the mark of Cain. But some people said, what do you mean everyone who meets him? I thought these were the first two humans. And then he marries a woman from the land of Nod and founds a city. And again, people said, what? What? He married a woman from the land of Nod? Where on earth did she come from? So there are multiple questions. There are thousands of questions once you take this literally that begin to arise and that if you're intellectually serious and spiritually serious – as people were, they needed to answer. Then we move on to Milton, and at this point, it begins to move in the direction of literature, meaning that your entire history of <clears throat> Milton himself indicates that a lot of what he talked about actually came out of his own life. This fantasy story of the rise and fall of Lucifer on some level is autobiography in a way. It's autobiography for everyone from the get-go. That is to say, one of the things that's wonderful about this story, and my interest in writing this book in the first place is not to be snarky about people who believe in this story, but on the contrary, to understand that the story is immensely powerful and magical. And one of the reasons it's magical is that insofar as you connect to it at all, you connect to it personally. You are in that story. It is always, in some sense, autobiographical. And the people who make a huge difference in the endless transmission of the story, 
the story is transmitted by tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. But the people who change the course of the story are people who somehow are so powerfully invested in it. Augustine is one of the ones we're talking about. Milton is another. That they actually change the whole course of the story. Now, by the time you reach Milton in the 17th century, you've had more than a thousand years since Augustine of people trying to make good on this fantastically difficult task of making these first creatures real. And so we've had Michelangelo in the Sistine Ceiling. We've had Titian. We've had Rembrandt. We've had innumerable others, Durer, people who have given them bodies. We've had theologians thinking about what their motivations were. We've had people worrying about whether they, they had fleas. Were fleas invented in paradise? Adam had them, someone said in the 16th century. Or whether the fish were named by Adam. How could the fish have got up far close enough to Adam for him to name? I mean, we've had people taking super seriously this charge. By the time you reach Milton, you have a story, not a story that's fading from view, but a story that's become so powerfully real that all of the questions that haunted the story from the beginning become overwhelmingly difficult and powerful. It's one thing if, it's, if these are shadowy figures in a New Yorker cartoon drawn with a tiny ink stroke. It's another thing if it's you and me in flesh and blood. And that's what had happened by the 17th century. So you get a situation when Milton is writing, for one thing, it's in the wake of 1492. They've discovered that there are millions of people out there who don't seem to be covering their genitals, who don't seem to have shame. What are they about? Every aspect of the story needs somehow, because of the reality conferred on Adam and Eve, to be grappled with. And Milton was the person, in effect, born to do this fantastic task. I'm going to throw something out at you, which actually came from being at the um, British National Gallery and then the Scottish one recent times, seeing picture after picture. As I was looking at that, and there were a lot of Adam and Eve pictures there, how can you avoid them? It occurred to me that some of them, particularly when you look at Bosch, it's almost like medieval porn. Taking that story and talking about the evils of sex and then showing images which are almost pornographic sort of is contradictory, or is it? Well, it can be contradictory or it can be a trap that you're being invited as a viewer to walk into. In the case of Bosch, there is a strange sense in which Bosch is is teasing you, tantalizing you. You, Richard, because you're fallen. Adam and Eve, naked Adam and Eve who are not covering themselves are not fallen. It's not their problem. They're innocent. The problem is you. You're not innocent. But are the people who are going to see these pictures, on some level, are they getting the porn? They are getting the excitement, and they're getting the excitement after also a very long time. In the ancient world, the ancient pagan world, there are many infinite numbers of representations of, of extremely attractive naked men and women. And that disappeared, in effect, in late antiquity and early medieval world. You get figures who are represented covering themselves in shame. So in the Renaissance, you begin to get, once again, figures, naked people, namely Adam and Eve in an innocent world who are showing themselves in their full glory. Of course, there is a challenge. The challenge is what do we do with the desire that these pictures arise, what you call the porn factor? So look, there's two things to say. In the first place, we're fallen, and the 
pictures are constantly playing games with the fact that we're fallen. Many of these pictures do actually tease you, tantalize you with the fact that your desire is simultaneously uncontrollable and it's a sign of your fallenness. But then there's also the fact that Adam and Eve as a story, go back to the beginning of the conversation, the beginning of the story. In the Bible, we don't have a lot of detail, but we're told in chapter 2 something very strange, which is that God evidently didn't think of something in the, in the creation. He made a mistake. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. Well, you might have thought he could have realized this the beginning, but he doesn't. He creates the man. He realizes that it's not good for the man to be alone. Then the Bible brings the other animals to the man. And the ancient rabbis thought this must, must have meant that man tried sex with all the other animals and found them wanting. I mean, as you could imagine, my God, a lobster or whatever he, he had to try. And then it's only in the wake of that that God creates the woman. And in the Hebrew Bible, there's a fantastic poem of desire, of love, on the part of Adam, who says, this one, this one, that ecstatic, in Hebrew it's zot, this one that I've been waiting for, in effect. And so the story licenses the representation not only of wickedness, sinfulness, but of what we hope to have in our life, which is the desire for the person that we're with and the joy of somebody else's body. Getting past Milton, which is a large section of the book, you did a lot of research, I guess, on the history. Milton is so great. Milton writes the greatest poem in the English language about the story. I mean, one wants to talk about Milton because he, he got it. And he got that Eve was the most interesting figure in the story. And he got that the humans made a choice that led not only to terrible things, but also to the way we are in the good sense of things, that, it, that to live in perfect innocence forever might not have been the best fate, that this might have been a fortunate outcome of their decision. Milton is stupendous. Well, also the first great science fiction story. Yes. When we come out of that past Milton, then we begin to see the changes because, as you said before, how do you account for all these naked people in the Americas, for one? And then, of course, we've got evolution and more and more proof that the earth is pretty old. I mean, people had thought on the set, when they worked out the begats in the Bible, which they tried to do very carefully, they figured that the world was created in 4004 before the common era. They even figured out the day and the hour that it was created. But once, you, once geology took off, starting in the 18th century, and then massively in the 19th century, people realized that it can't be 4004. BCE. That's just a blink in time compared with the age of the earth. And then people realized that this story was, to take it literally, was a serious problem. Of course, people still do. You've got Bible land in sure. Nashville, whatever. I haven't been, I haven't seen the scenes of people riding, on, Adam riding on a dinosaur and so forth. But I take it that the impulse, however silly it looks to us, is because the story is very good to think with. People don't want to give it up. You mentioned a man named Philip Goss who tries to bring it together by saying, yes, the world is only 6,000 years old, but God was faking us out. There's a history of attempts at first when, for example, when scientists started digging up gigantic bones that didn't correspond to, to uh, any bones of a known animal, 
they thought, well, maybe these are the bones, in fact, of the original humans that were huge and so forth and so on. I mean, there are a variety of different explanations. By the time of rather distinguished naturalist named Philip Goss in the 19th century, he began to brood more and more about what to do with the increasing, overwhelming amount of scientific evidence that seemed to invalidate the literal truth of the story. And he focused it all, strangely enough, on the idea of your belly button so that the famous work he wrote is called Amphalos, the navel. His notion was that, look, if you try to think of what Adam and Eve looked like, you realize they must have had navels because they would have looked weird if they didn't have them. But they wouldn't have needed them because they hadn't had parents or umbilical cords. Now, why would God have given them navels? Because they looked better, but also it's a sort of playful. God was playing a game with you. And the same was true, he thought, about all of the paleological evidence that was being dug up. But poor Goss, at that point, this argument might have carried muster a few hundred years before. But by the 19th century, Goss was ridiculed for making the argument. What would Augustine have thought of, like, in vitro fertilization? I've thought about this a lot. I actually should find out more seriously the answer, Richard, because we should know what the current position of the Catholic Church, which carries on in a way the Augustinian tradition is toward in vitro fertilization. I'm not prepared to answer that question theologically. I do think that the idea is a fantastic problem, at least for this Augustinian line. A fantastic problem because for the creation of humans without sexual intercourse would have invalidated the whole elaborate theological tradition. Cloning. Cloning, the harvesting of eggs or the harvesting of sperm. These all represent a profoundly different account of how we, our whole moral being is. And I don't know, I should have perhaps find someone, we should both find someone to talk to who is a theological expert on what the contemporary Catholic Church makes of this. And then, of course, you can go on to things like AI. I mean... After a while, because of technology and what's possible, what was possible, there's so much more now. But I want to turn it back on you the other way around, Richard, to invert the, the perception that you're having. Of course, it's true what you say. Our whole account of, of AI, of even Viagra, the idea that you could artificially trigger desire chemically, I mean, these are this wildly on the other side of this long tradition. On the other hand, I think we're closer to many deep perceptions in the long tradition of interpreting Adam and Eve than we have been for a long time in one area of our lives, namely in the environment. That is to say, I think now in the 21st century, we are sensitive as we hadn't been as a, as a species for a very long time to the fact that it isn't something about the way we are and what we do that is causing catastrophic harm to our whole universe. And that's a perception that goes back to this archaic story. In a sense, we are fallen then. We are indeed. I mean, look around. <laughs> I was reading a, uh, a review of the book in The Guardian, and it mentioned what you'd left out of the book, in particular Islam on other areas, which meant that as you were working on this, the book looked like it could have spun out of control if you had gone to too many areas? Well, you, you've already explained, in fact, the choices that I had to make. There is some Islam in the book, but given the vastness of the Islamic tradition, not a lot. Of course, Islam comes late in my story, much later than, than the materials in the ancient uh, Hebrew and 
uh, Christian world that I'm talking about, but also I left out great swatches of medieval theological thought. The trouble and the glory of this enterprise is that 10 lifetimes would not be enough to actually exhaust these materials. So centrally, I had to think of a plot. What's my? What's the story I have to tell? And the story that I wanted to tell, there are many stories to tell, and I, I'm, there are, are lots of other people who could tell it in different ways. But the story I had to tell was about what it meant it's a Pinocchio story, let's put it that way. What it meant for something that was invented, for the strings to be cut and for that invention to begin to dance as if it were alive. And what it means for that to happen is a triumph, but it's also is a mortal experience that eventually what is alive will die. And we are watching, we're at the very early stage, I think, still, because after all, Darwin is only 150 years ago, we're at the early stage of the transformation of this very powerful account of reality into fiction, into literature, a story in short. There's an epilogue that's quite long in The Rise and Fall of Adam and Eve about a trip you took to Africa. Um, Why is that there? I wanted to see for myself what it is that our origin story looks like. Because one of the things I was brooding about already at the beginning of writing the book was why isn't it that our origin story, by our I mean the story that comes basically after Darwin's Descent of Man or even after The Origin of Species, why hasn't that story, which has triumphed in the scientific world, why has it had such a sort of shaky presence in the larger world? something like 35 or 40 percent of Americans profess to believe in the literal truth of the Adam and Eve story, even though it is incompatible with contemporary scientific understanding. And that has to do with the largely with, as I say, with the incredible compulsive power of the story. But it also has to do with the fact that it's difficult to get one's head around what our origin story, our scientific origin story looks like. So I wanted to see for myself, insofar as we are not only related to primates, but the last common ancestor, that is to say, the, the ancestor that just preceded the moment at which humans branched off from the other primates, most resembles chimpanzees in the contemporary world. We're not descended from chimpanzees, but chimpanzees, it is thought, are most like what the last common ancestor looked like, what our real origins, as it were, looked like. So I wanted to see for myself what that looks like. And I happen to have a friend who runs a very, very distinguished scientist friend, Richard Rangham, who runs a, a chimpanzee research station in Western Uganda, who took some effort. I arranged uh, to get permission to go and observe uh, the chimpanzees in the wild myself. And it was, to use your earlier word, a revelation. It's a revelation because you actually can see, in some sense, you can see things that the ancient storytellers who created the account of Adam and Eve were dreaming about. What does it mean to live without the knowledge of good and evil? What does it mean to live without the awareness of mortality? They're mortal, of course, all too mortal chimpanzees, but they're not aware that they're dying. What is it to look so much like us, to be so much like us, but not be us, to have a different structure of life, as it were? And that is what you see breathtakingly in the forest, in this case in uh, Kibale and uh, Western Uganda. When you walk out of it, then, do you walk out confused, feeling there is no God? Do you walk out feeling, I no longer know? Obviously, Adam and Eve is myth, 
But what do you walk out of? I walked out, in the case of, of that experience particularly, I walked out feeling both exalted joy and anguish. Exalted joy because it's so beautiful and fascinating to see, how should we say, the road not taken by humans, the alternative path, the extraordinary life of these creatures so much like us. I felt anguish because we're destroying that world. It's not going to be around very long. The habitat is shrinking at a terrifying rate, and very, very soon, the only chimpanzees that we'll observe will be in the zoo. Stephen Greenblatt, now you've finished this book. You have another book coming out? Well, I do. I'm always playing around. I'm back thinking about my, my first great love, that is to say, William Shakespeare, and about William Shakespeare's thoughts about, about power and about society. So I'm still working away at it, but I hope that you'll hear from me before too long. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.